between and with, with power differences, where some people had all the power and they used it to abuse others. And that Jesus comes into that world and he comes as one who had no earthly power. He's born in a manger. And Jesus grows up and he goes to temple and he's learning about God and he's studying the scriptures. And, and at some point, Jesus begins to understand his role as the Son of God. I love Poncho's idea that Jesus is the answer, but the question is, what is the question that Jesus is answering? Jesus answers a lot of questions. Questions like, is it possible for God to dwell with his people? Because when we look at the Old Testament over and over again, what we see is that God's trying to have a relationship with his people, Israel, and they make it hard. They worship statues and idols. They participate in pagan rituals. They, they take on the faith of their neighbors and abandon the faith that God has called them to. They practice immorality. They're faithless when God says, just trust me. If you just put your faith in me and are obedient to me, I will be your God and you can be my people. And Israel over and over again fails to do that. And God has to be patient with them and loving to them and forgiving to them, but they don't make it easy. And so by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, the presence of God is no longer dwelling in the temple. Israel has been taken off into exile, and even as they come back, the question is there, will God live among His people? Can God dwell among such sinful, broken people? Because in the beginning, we were created to dwell with God. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he puts at the pinnacle of his creation is a man and a woman, and he puts them there, and he wants a relationship with them. That's why out of the entire creation, it is Adam and Eve who are made in the image of God. We are the ones, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, who are called to be in God's image to have a relationship with him. And yet they chose the apple, the fruit in the garden that they were forbidden from eating. They chose that. They chose themselves, they chose their own desires, their own vanity, their own wants, instead of obedience and relationship with God. So in the beginning, the relationship with God is broken and they are kicked out of the garden. And over and over again, the stories ask the question, can people deal with our own desires to choose brokenness and to reject God? Can God live in the midst of people who are selfish? who put our own desires first, who always want uh, what is best for me and so often fail to think about what God desires when what He desires more than anything is a relationship with us. <coughs> God wants us to be His adopted children. And yet we so often reject Him. We choose other things. It's not the statues and the, the pagan rituals of the Old Testament. We so often choose greed. We choose immorality. We choose uh, broken relationships with people that we should be loving toward. We choose all the things that God doesn't want us to choose. And because of that, we are like Adam and Eve. We're like Israel. We're separated from God in our own personal lives. So in the midst of that, asking that question of can we have a relationship with God? Can we live with God in our presence? Jesus becomes Emmanuel. It's one of the names that's given to Jesus. And the name, Jesus, the name Emmanuel is given to Jesus because it means God with us. 
As the Old Testament ends asking the question, can God dwell among us? The New Testament begins with the answer, Emmanuel, in Jesus, God is with us. And so Jesus walks with us and he lives with us. It's one of the most unbelievable, mind-boggling things to me that, that Jesus is there in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word uh, was, was there in the beginning as the Word begins to create all that exists. Jesus is there creating with God in the beginning. Let there be light. Jesus is there. Let there be sun and moon and stars in the sky. Jesus is, is part of uh, the God that is speaking that into existence. And now Jesus is born and he has to learn how to walk. Jesus cuts his hand on things when he's working in his dad's carpenter shop. He gives up the ability to say, let there be light to have to learn how to speak at all. He's got to learn how to read. He's got to learn math. Listen, kids, if you're in school right now and you're thinking, why do I have to learn this? Jesus thought that too. And at some point, Jesus thought, I created math. Why am I having to learn it? But that's part of the nature of what Jesus gave up so that he could dwell among us and so that he could be with us. Because he came down here to answer the question, are we forever separated from God? Jesus, even in the birth, says no. But even more so than in his birth, in his ministry, he teaches us. He teaches us what it means to be his disciples. And he teaches us what it means to be one of his followers. And he teaches us what it means to be part of his kingdom. And it's not what anyone expects it to be. Over and over again, the apostles, we talked about this last week. Over and over again, the apostles are getting in arguments about who's the second greatest. Jesus is first, who's next? And they're arguing all the time. Oh, it's obviously me. I walked on water. And they're like, it's obviously not you. You drowned, dummy. Uh, it's obviously me. I, I'm the one that, that passed out the most bread and had all the faith. Yeah, you're also the one that doubted and had to bring the basket of bread back at the end. And, and so they're having these arguments. Who is the greatest? And Jesus says it's not about that in this kingdom. This is a kingdom of service. This is a kingdom of sacrifice. This is a kingdom of putting others ahead of yourselves. And he says, you know how that's true? I, you know it's true because I'm going to show you how it's done. I'm going to show you that I am the Son of God. I have all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And you know what I'm going to do with it? I'm going to give it all away. Why? So that you can have all authority on heaven and earth with me. So that you can be exalted in the same way I'm exalted. This is the good news that Jesus brings us. Well, Jesus, how do we get to have all authority on heaven and earth? Easy. Give it away. Serve others. Because the one of you who makes yourself the least of these is the one who will become the greatest. And so it's this upside-down kingdom that nobody expects. And that's the good news. And so Jesus in his death and resurrection takes us out of our current place of being separated from God. And he puts us in a new place where we're now united with God. Well, what does that mean? 
What it means is that Adam and Eve had to leave the garden because of their sins. It means that Israel doesn't have God dwelling among them because of their worship of things that aren't God. It means that we who used to be separated from God, that, that Paul tells us in Romans, if you're baptized into Jesus Christ, you're baptized into his death and his resurrection. And that through that baptism, <coughs> you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2. And when you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and you receive this resurrection life, there's two things that now change. One, you get to live with God for eternity. And two, His Spirit starts living in you already. Already and forever, you're united with God. The questions have been answered. Is it because I'm good enough that I get those things? No. I'm not good enough. I could try my whole life to be good enough. And I'm pretty good. I'm better than most. And, and I know most of you in the room, too. Um, and, and most of you are better than most. Um, some of you are not. And I won't name names because that's not what this sermon's about. But maybe someday we'll do that sermon. That might be fun. Uh, but, but from the worst of us to the best of us, none of us is good enough without Jesus Christ. And you can't earn it, and you can't do enough, and your actions cannot give you a stairway to heaven. There is only one way. Jesus says it himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so as Jesus offers us that, that ticket to heaven, you can't earn it, you can't buy it. You're only going to get there if you get it by going through Jesus Christ. And he pays the price for your ticket. We call this, uh, in, in the church, we call it grace. Yeah. This is the free gift of grace that God offers us through his son's sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, that we now are invited into his death and into his resurrection to receive eternal life in the Holy Spirit. This is what Christianity is all about. You cannot earn it. Jesus gives it to you for free. And then what? Then you choose to do stuff because of what Jesus did for you, demonstrated for you, how he taught us how to live, how he demonstrated how to live. Get busy. So do we have to, to do things to be saved? No, but because we are saved, should we get busy doing things that Jesus would do? Yes. Now, it doesn't save us, and we're not doing it because we have a debt. It's not that if we do enough good that Jesus will say, all right, you're finally worth my death on the cross. Uh, I'm glad I did that for you. It's not paying a debt. What it is, is, is realizing that the Jesus way of living the Jesus way of loving, the Jesus way of being in the world and changing the world is the best way to live. Why would you choose to live any other way? And so we then begin shaping our lives, not around our desire for the fruit, not around our desire for the things of the world like Israel chose, not, not around what I want today. I shape all of it around the Jesus way of living. And it's not just about agreeing with Jesus. 
when you get baptized, we ask you the question, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes, because of that, I'm not going to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So your sins can be forgiven. That's what saves you, is Jesus' death on the cross and your faith that that's true. It's something that happens in your head. But after that happens in your head, the rest of being a disciple takes place in your body, in your smile demonstrating joy, in your encouragement of someone else uh, showing that, that you're loving and kind, in your giving of generosity and, and sharing what you have this extra with someone that has less. It's active. Christianity is an active life. James, the brother of Jesus, is writing about this in his letter to the church, and here's what he says about it. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. But even the demons believe that and shudder. Even the demons believe that. <clears throat> this is an incredible argument that James is making. He says, listen, God is real, but you can believe that with all your heart that God is real and choose to walk away. You can believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and say, yeah, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but that's not for me. I don't want to live the way that he called me to live. I, I want to pursue my own selfish desires. I want to go out and have fun all the time. I want to be greedy and step all over people on my pursuit of power and wealth. I want to reject God's way and choose my way. And if God doesn't like it, I don't care. You can do that and still believe that God created everything and still believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You can believe rightly and live wrongly. Or you can believe rightly and live accordingly. What does that look like? James says, I'll show you what it looks like by my actions, by the way that I treat people. So much of James is, is talking about uh, recognizing that, that there is a need for Christians to take care of one another. There's a need for Christians to see where someone else has a need and I have the ability to meet that need. I should do it. I shouldn't just say, bummer. Bummer. I feel bad for you that your life is terrible. It's saying, i got to do something about it when your life is bad because Jesus did something about it when my life was bad. Now, I don't do it because I have a debt to Jesus. I do it because Jesus demonstrated it, and I think, man, Jesus' way is the best way, so I'm going to do what he did. I'm going to do it too because he is my example, and I am his disciple. You foolish person, James continues, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see 
that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. This is Father Abraham. You may know him from the VBS song, Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them and so are you. Um, He's famous. He's famous for his faith. He's famous for putting his faith into action. God says, listen, I want you to be willing to offer your son on the altar in obedience to me. And Abraham says, I, I, you know, he wrestles with this, but ultimately he says, God, if that's what you want me to do, I will do that. And he goes up on, on the mountain and he takes his son and he's prepared to offer his son as a sacrifice out of obedience to God. And it's a messy story and it's a disturbing story and we get hung up on kind of some of that. But we have to remember that God himself is later going to be willing to offer his son as a sacrifice for us so that we might be saved by faith. Abraham shows himself willing to make the same sacrifice for God that God would later make for every one of us. And in doing so, Abraham becomes the one who is credited with righteousness and and granted this, this status as being the one of great faith through whom the seed would eventually come, the Jesus that saves us. Happens through Abraham. Why? Because he had faith. So we, we kind of think, oh, that's just, he's a Bible hero, right? It's easy for Bible heroes to have faith and their actions to, to make it matter. And he probably was raised with all the right people in all the right ways. And, and certainly he's got herds and wealth and all this thing. It's easy to be faithful when you have all those advantages. James chapter 2 and verse 25, he continues, in the same way, Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James doesn't let us say, yeah, that's good for Father Abraham who had many sons. But what about a normal person? What about someone who struggles to do the right thing in their life? What What about a Canaanite prostitute? Can she have great faith? You bet she can. Spies of God's people came into her village and she had to choose. There is this people that believes that they, uh, in their God and that is going to come in and take over this land and we're all afraid. Why are we afraid? Is it because of, of their armies? Yeah. But is it even more so because of the God who is with them, who has granted them great victories and who now is going to bring them into this promised land? Yeah. Rahab, do you believe that's what God's going to do? I do. Well, are you going to do anything about it? She could just look at that army and look at her people and and try and give her people the advantage, turn over the spies. She could do all kinds of things, but what she does is she says, I'm going to believe in the God of these people, and I'm going to stand up for them. In what's yet another messy Old Testament story, she puts her faith into action. She does something. She risks her own life to save these spies. And because of that, generations of her family are spared when God's people come into Jericho. 
So over and over again, we see in Jesus' ministry that this theme continues to ring true, that there are people of great faith. There's a man named Legion who's possessed by demons, and at the end of the story, he says, Jesus, can I go with you? I want to be with you. I want to learn from you. And Jesus tells him, no, that's not your role. I want you to go into the region of the ten cities, the Decalogue, and I want you to go to these ten cities, and I want you to tell them all that God has done for you. And it's not to pay a debt. Jesus isn't saying, and if you don't do that, I'm going to send those demons back from the pigs back into you, because you deserve it if you don't do what I tell you to do. It's Jesus saying, you've got an opportunity to tell people what God's done for you. Jesus shows up at a well with a woman, who's a Samaritan woman, and she's been married five times and living with another one that she's not married to. He, they have this conversation about faith and water and living water, and, and he gives her the acknowledgement of her humanity in the midst of so much suffering and so many people that see her only as someone that should be ashamed. And Jesus sees her as a human and lifts her up. And when Jesus does that, she could have just said, I feel good, I, I'm just going to go about my life, but she doesn't. She does the hard thing of being vulnerable and going to everyone in her village and saying, you need to come meet the man who told me everything I've ever done. And they looked at her, and she's kind of a one-woman walking tabloid scandal, and they went, hey, if he's telling everything she's ever done, we're going to go hear this story. And they show up. Some of them believed on her testimony alone, but others believed after they went and spent time with Jesus. She put her faith that Jesus was this Messiah who they were waiting for into action by telling people about who he was and what he had said to her and what he could say to them. And as a result, many believe. There's so many stories as you go through the Gospels. There's the story of the widow who gives her last two pennies to God. And in the midst of people who are giving huge sums of money, and saying, man, look at all the money that I gave. And Jesus looks over at this woman who gives her last two coins. And he says, that woman gave the most. She doesn't know where her next meal is coming from. She doesn't know who's going to provide for her, except that she knows that God will provide. She doesn't need to depend on her two little coins if God can provide everything that she needs. We see stories like uh, Timothy's grandmother who teaches him to be faithful to God and to believe in God and to even at a young age become one of Paul's leaders in the church. And it's credited to his grandmother. She has faith, but she doesn't say, I want my kids to grow up and, and choose whatever faith they want. She says, I want to spend my time putting my faith in action by teaching my children about who God is and what he's done. So often when we think about putting our faith in action, we think about mission trips and service projects and, and going out and, and seeking people that, that need something. Do you know what your kids need? Your kids and your grandkids need for you to have a faith that's worth passing down and a willingness to do the work to do it. And you put your faith in action by telling your children about who God is and what He's done for you. You don't even have to leave home to do that one. We see people uh, in the Gospels. We see Barnabas, who in the book of Acts becomes known as the son of encouragement. What a great nickname. 
the son of encouragement, someone who is known uh, for his generosity, uh, probably someone who supported not only his own mission trip, but other people's by selling land and giving it to the church and, and saying, listen, whatever you need, use my stuff to provide for those who have a need. Radical generosity, but they don't just call him the son of generosity. He's the son of encouragement. He had an ability to seek people out who were discouraged and brighten their day. That's putting faith in action, is finding people uh, who are just in the dumps. And instead of just being like, hey, I see you over there, bummer, going and saying, I want to lift you up. I want to encourage you. I, I want to change your day and brighten your day. I want you, at the end of your day, when you think, what was the bright point of my day, to think, you know what? That was a good point. That person lifted me up, putting faith in action. There's a little line, it's, it's in the, the beginning of uh, the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 2, where Jesus is being presented at the temple. And there are two that are there. One is Simeon, who is an old man who's been promised that he will not die before he sees the Son of God. And the other one is, is a prophet named Anna. Anna was married and lived with her husband for seven years, and he died, and she spent the rest of her life as a widow. And she could have just said, listen, I'm a widow, I've got to grieve, I've got things I've got to do, and fill her free time with all kinds of other stuff, but she didn't. Anna spent all of her time at the temple, worshiping God, praising God, exalting God in front of others. Uh, she's known as a prophet. She proclaimed God's truth to people who would listen. And when she sees this little baby boy, Jesus, she starts telling everyone who's at the temple about who he is and the difference he's going to make. She put her faith in action by constantly praising God. There's plenty of us that acknowledge that, that Jesus is king, and we don't actually praise him. Maybe the only time we lift God up with our lips is when we're in this room. Is God worthy of more praise than Sunday morning from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m.? I think He is. But do I always remember that He is? Do I always put that faith and belief that God is worthy of praise into action by lifting Him up in prayer and gratitude, in praise and worship, by exalting Him with the words of my mouth? Not every day. I should. I should constantly be putting faith into action. It's because I owe Jesus? No. I don't owe him. There's not a debt to pay. He's not holding it over me. I died for you. What are you going to do for me now? In the same way that it's not our works that save us, our works don't pay for what we couldn't have paid for on our own. Our works are not good enough to do that before or after we become a Christian. Boy, the Jesus way of living is better than any other way. And it's an active life. It's a busy life. It doesn't mean you have to exhaust yourself because Jesus also spent time on the mountainside praying. Jesus knew when to withdraw. Even in the midst of rest, Jesus was active in his relationship with God. This week is uh, Labor Day week. It's a week that celebrates work. It's a week that celebrates uh, the fruit of, of your labors. And hopefully it's a week where you get a little bit of extra time. And I hope that you use that extra time to do something for the kingdom, 
to do something that puts your faith into action, to make a difference in someone else's light so that you become salt and light, transforming the world by simply being the active presence of Christ to a world that so desperately needs it. This morning, if you need to respond to the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ did die on the cross to save you so that you might live with God for eternity and have His Spirit dwelling in you even today, if you need to respond to that or have any other need, come forward as we stand and sing.